Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. Today on the show, I had the author of a book called The Money Hackers. His name is Dan Simon. And actually, I didn't realize that I was a pretty decent percentage of the book until I read the book recently. Anyways, it is released this week. It's called The Money Hackers, How a Group of Misfits Took on Wall Street and Changed Finance Forever. Dan is a super cool guy. I was on his podcast a few years ago talking about the money mackerel. Uh, It was on that show that we actually formulated a lot of the concepts. Dan is very, very brilliant. He's a chairman of the Museum of American Finance's Communications Board and CEO of Vested. Vested is one of the largest PR companies in New York, actually globally. It's a global financial communications firm. He represents a lot of the people that we even talked about on the show today. Some people that he talked positively and negatively about in finance and fintech like Morgan Stanley, Bloomberg, Goldman Sachs. He writes for Forbes, even does Cointelegraph. Wonderful, wonderful guy. Great episode. Great book. You're going to love it. Talk to you guys in a little bit. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsor, BitPay, for making today's episode possible. We'll hear more about them later on in this episode. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them, and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the BlockWorks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at BlockWorksGroup.io. That's BlockWorksGroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Today, I have Dan Simon, the author of the book that I didn't even know he was writing called The Money Hackers. And I'm very excited for this book. Let me tell you, usually when someone's writing a book about you, uh, you know about it in advance. And I and I kind of, you know, I, I knew I had inklings, but, you know, the world moves on and things happen. And then so a few weeks ago, I got an email from you or from your assistant or whatever um, saying, hey. Uh, do you want to have Dan on your podcast? And I had looked and I was like, oh yeah, I remember Wall and Broadcast, we we did a whole show together. Yeah. And uh, actually, right. I still reference our show when talking about like the Money Mac all the time to people. And I was like, well, I need to make sure before I have him on the show, I need to make sure that I actually like what he wrote about me. Because if he wrote that, like I'm a dick or something, then I can't, you know, wow. or maybe I will. And I just, it's a different type of show. But so um, I read it and- I was very impressed because, and I have to be careful what I say because the authors of the other books about me are my friends and I don't want to get them angry, but your book was very good. Like it was real. I read the whole book and I don't, and I, and I never, I'm a very, uh, like anal reader. I throw books at windows. Uh-huh. Ask my wife, if I don't like a book, I'll fucking throw it at the wall. I like this book sucks. I read a hundred <laughs> books last year. So like, I'm a big reader uh-huh. and I didn't even like the other books that uh-huh. were written about me. I like Ben Mesrick's book. That was the only one, but your book was really good. Why did you want to write Thank one you. about the people in crypto? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you it's about everyone in FinTech, right? I would actually say, um, I, you know, I, I'm not a crypto expert. I just play one on TV. Right. So I don't, uh, you know, actually that area of the book, which is about crypto, 
and um, Ethereum and Bitcoin is probably the kind of area that I'm the weakest on relative to, say, peer-to-peer lending or, um, you know, robo-advisory or whatever. But I had had that wonderful experience talking with you um, when I had a podcast, um, Wallam Broadcast, which you came on. And I don't know if you, did you ever see the video that we did, the little animation that we did? No, I just saw it this morning. Oh, you have to check it out. I just did, yeah, it was great. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a lot, it was a lot of fun talking to you back then. So you may not realize, and I think you were probably, but I did try getting hold of you, um, when I was going to put the book together, but I, I figured you, one, I figured you were probably very busy, very important man. No. Two, I had so many hours of conversations with you for the podcast and I had those, two, we made that. There was so much that you and I talked about that we made it a two-part special. You were the only podcast that had two episodes dedicated to it. I remember. Um, so I kind of felt like you were the one person I didn't need to like grab hold of to start writing. Well, so, I got to be honest um, with you. I was using your podcast as a, uh, a reference to a lot of people to talk about some of my ideas, not just with Money Mac, but with other things. Uh, I even right. I even like had taken it and broken it down into snippets to explain some things like you did for the video. And then someone said to me, Charlie, why aren't you doing your own podcast? And and here we are today. Oh, well, look, the circle <laughs> is complete. The circle of <laughs> to, life. To quote Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's great. I'm 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 really delighted to be talking to you. It's been too long. And uh, yeah, yours was a yours was a nice chapter to add to the book. You know, I think the more I looked at the fintech space, the more I realize that everyone in it is kind of fascinating and they're all a little weird for want of a better way of putting it uh, and not trying to insult you, but they're just, the no, we I are. We're a bunch of weirdos. Sub, yeah. Subhead is like misfits, right? How a group of misfits took on wall street um, and changed finance. Forever. I like that it's, word. It, it, I mean, I'm proud of that. Which word. one? Misfits. Yeah. It's a good word. It's like, yeah, it, it recognizes that we're kind of messed up, but at the same time, um, visionaries is like too, like, I don't know. I hate that word. Yeah. It's like, I'm not like, you know, like Jesus or something, you know, like, like not, that's a bad example, right. but like, yeah, that's right. it's just an ego filled word where misfit is just like, okay, uh-huh. it's not, you're not like a bad, you know, you're just kind of throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. And sometimes that gets you into trouble. And also the, the, the key, the key part or another piece of the whole like word misfit is that they don't, they literally don't fit in. <laughs> And I, I've never fit in where I, you know, where I am. I've never fully fit in. I'm a, I'm a kind of a strange, like I'm a Brit, but I'm, I'm live more time in America. I'm, I'm a writer and a comms person, but I've made Wall Street my home. So money, and I'm, I'm personally, as you read in the, in my author's note, I'm like really personally bad with money, but I've made my living telling stories about money. So, um, I don't fit in it anywhere either. So I think that's why I was kind of attracted to people who don't fit where they are. And none of the people, if you look across the fintech movement, look like traditional finance people, which is why they, uh, they don't fit in and they... Uh, but I, I need you know, to push back. Not, you know, I need to push back with you yeah, for a second. Yeah. Um, and I apologize for yeah. doing it because where I want to disagree a little bit is that my, you know, my, my life story and my kind of like my, my uh, 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 coming of age, you know, into adulthood uh, mm. coincided with, with, with the advent of Bitcoin in 2011. So like 2011, 
uh, I was I was still a junior in college, right? So like my adult life and everything, it kind of worked uh, perfectly together. Now here I was during these years, the, the post the you know uh, 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 recession apocalypse when the financial system was in shambles and the uh, the the ashes of the that would eventually create the new payment rails and technologies that we use today were starting to like start to like bristle and you know form during those years or whatever. I was the misfit, you know, because I was the the Jewish kid in my parents' Hasidic Brooklyn basement. And I was trying to go raise money in Silicon Valley for Bitcoin and Silicon Valley was filled with, yeah, we're, we're going to build a new payment company and hack money. I'm like, what are you doing? Oh, we're just building a new payment company on top of the ACH system. But how is that changing money? What I'm doing is changing money. Bitcoin, like, you know, hold on. I got to go to the kosher restaurant. Like it was just like a conflicting world that I was in during those years. And I guess I didn't see the other money hackers as co-misfits unless they were in crypto. Maybe that's not fair. Maybe they're like in a bubble. Uh, you don't think, which which people did you not think were misfits? Which I, ones? I feel like a lot of the companies that we use today, like Cash App, Venmo, uh, a lot of these other companies um, are were founded by uh, darlings of Silicon Valley companies. Ones where you go to, oh, you yeah. go to the Stanfords, you go to the Harvards, you go to the Ivy yeah. Leagues, you raise money, you all those type. Those are not the misfits. The misfits yeah. are the people you write about in your book. Those are the misfits. I see what you mean. I see what you mean. I think misfit, you know, can apply a lot of different ways. So for you coming at it, the, 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 the hegemony that you're like battling against the Silicon Valley, for me, it's Wall Street. So in many ways, the Silicon Valley people, even as you're looking at them as like darlings, and yeah, maybe they did have Ivy, Ivy League or Oxbridge kind of backgrounds, they're still misfits compared to the Wall Streeters, I guess. So, you know, I'm, I'm like you. I'm, I'm a little scruffy, a little bit of a, an outsider. I've always had a chip on my shoulder about feeling on the outside. For me, the outside is being outside of Wall Street, outside of those uh, ivory towers of the major banks. And I'm sure that it feels the same or felt the same for you being on the outside of the Googles or the Facebooks or the... To me, though, those people are still misfits in the context of Wall Street. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. I mean, even, and even the ones who were dedicated Wall Streeters, right? I just think about like the women that we cover in the book, people like Margaret Keane, people like Blythe Masters. Um, you know, yeah, they spent their entire career inside of finance. But like, let's not forget that like, you know, the New York Stock Exchange didn't have a women's bathroom until the 80s, you know, so... I, I still classify them as somehow feeling on the outside. They weren't like, you know, white dudes. And I think uh, talking about coronavirus of the day, um, you know, the news of the day, um, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a nurse this morning. And I said, I said to him, um, you know, uh, my parents and our grandparents remembered the soldiers um my generate, we're now going to remember the nurses and the doctors, but really, you know, like the medical industry, uh, we're going to look up to those people. Uh, now it's, it's a, it's a very, very, very different ball game. And like what we uh, look at is important, you know, and it kind of goes on to what you were saying. Oh, for sure. Like, and, and I mean, the, so the reason I wrote the book I thought is because finance was, was helping fewer and fewer of those, of the regular people. Right. So like, there's a lot of people who've just been designated, 
essential workers, and the irony is they all earn the least amount of money. Yeah, minimum and wage. The, and they are underserved by the traditional financial institutions. The reason and, that uh, they that, have to be essential workers is because they can't afford to not work right now. That's right. They can't afford to not work right now. They're not getting paid hazard pay, which they should be. Um, and they are typically massively underserved by the financial services industry. Um, because they don't look like the people that the big bang, I've got to be quite careful what I say because yeah. these guys are my client. Yeah, of course. Um, um, but, but the reality is like we weren't serving the bottom 50% of this market and the financial industry, the traditional financial industry spent a lot of time chasing, you know, a smaller and smaller pool of, of richer and richer people. You, um, knew your research already, I feel like, because uh, not only are you the CEO of, of Vested, which uh, I didn't realize how big your... I love doing research on my guests because I learned so much. <laughs> but yeah, I didn't realize that you have... Uh, you've been around for a very long time. Uh, you have a very big team and you have yeah. a lot of really big clients. So you're like yeah. almost like the yeah. like a gladiator. You ever see uh, um, Shameless? Not Shameless. What's the scandal? Great TV show. You're like that, right? In a way. I don't know. I don't I don't watch a lot of TV, so you have to explain. the. Rest. OK, well, she she is like a PR crisis manager, but oh, also yeah. communications for politicians oh. and media executives and like Wall Street type. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so what's that like? I'm the fixer. That's I mean, it's cool. It's cool. Listen, I mean, it's cool. You know, when you it's cool. PR is the last refuge of the scandal uh, uh, of the scoundrel. Right. So like. You, you know, if you don't know, if you come out of college and you're kind of leaning towards kind of liberal arts and you're maybe you're a writer, you can't make any money in journalism. You can't make any money. The sort of marketing PR is kind of what people like me tend to fall into. Um, but, I, you know, I was also cursed with this having a brain. So the idea of doing PR for like carrying Paris Hilton's handbag or you know, celebs or anything like that just would just rot my, rot my brain from the inside out. So, you know, I fell into and found this, this whole area of finance super cool. And you're right. We, we've got a, we've grown a huge global team of hundred people. We work with some of the biggest names, you know, if you name a blue chip financial institution or major fintech, by the way, um, you know, we, we are working with them. Most of the time I'm not, I'm, I'm, sh I'm assuming that in your TV show that you like, there's some, there's some debris in Reno and someone has to like, you know, bury the body and do that sort of stuff. We're not doing, we're not, I don't do so much of that stuff. I don't because, um, and, and like cover up, uh, major issues. Most of the time it's quite, uh, quite benign and boring. Um, you get front seat to all the stuff that's happening. I was there at the front row of, you know, 2008. And that's why, that's where the book starts is like standing outside of Lehman Brothers and just watching those lights go off on that giant LCD wrapper they had around the building. That's now the Barclays building. So, you know, this, it does feel a bit like you've had a front row seat to history. And how about now? What do you think is going to come out of, of our economy after you know, the lights turn back on of, of, of these buildings, you know, to use your reference. I mean, I think, um, I think 
there's a couple of ways of looking at it, right? I think, um, sadly, the problems that we were experiencing before in the top of the bull market, right? 50% of Americans not having $500 in emergency savings, increasing and, and, and accelerating income and wealth inequality in this country. You know, this is just exacerbating that. This is making that so much worse. Um, and I worry that the fintechs that we to impart and address some of that are going to go out of business, frankly. Um, and the ones that, uh, uh, you know, the empire strikes back, the, 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 the big banks, you know, are going to, um, you know, are, are going to uh, succeed, are going to um, buy up all of those fintechs. And I worry that there's, you know, that some of the good ideas about democratization of finance, about disintermediation, the stuff that you're interested in, decentralization, kind of goes away. Um, and I, I hope it doesn't. I'm I'm like an oddly emotional person, maybe because of like PTSD issues or whatever. But um, I feel right. like I bear the weight of the world on my shoulder sometimes and, and the guilt, not guilt, but like the, I, I, I feel, uh, I feel like severe empathy with people who uh, are less fortunate than, than I am. Um, I feel very blessed. Mm. And I guess where I'm going with this is I worry that, and, and, I, and no one's talking about it, but I, I honestly, and it gets me very sad. Um, I honestly worry that we will see a removal of the middle class. And I know it's stupid to like, you know, it's why are you getting emotional about that? But if you think about it, the middle class in America, at least, it really is what makes us li live and love life. If you think about everything you consume, everything you do, your friendship circles, your the meals you eat. The things that you that the things that you're not doing right now, that you're sitting home, the things that you're not doing right now, all those things are operated, run by, run with, worked with your friends. It's all middle class. We're all it's not the yeah. the one percent. That all may go away. The the bartenders that yeah. that that worked in the bars that are your friends that you go see a, a movie with on Sunday night now may not be able to afford the movies anymore on Sunday. That's that's what I'm saying. It's the middle class, yeah. it, it's its depressing. And I'm, I don't mean to get depressing on the show, but that's what I fear. Tell me I'm wrong. Please tell me I'm wrong. Uh, I would love to tell you you're wrong. I fear that the middle, I mean, that's at the heart of this book, right? Which is that the middle class has been you know, massively eroded uh. over the last um, over the last 10 years. I, I, I mean, I, you could see this coming around in a couple of different ways. You know, there's a conversation now about real... New Deal style stimulus money, the recognition from the politicians that they can't just keep stimulating the economy from the top. They can't just keep mon pumping money. The Fed just can't keep, you know, pushing money into the banks. It can't just be about the stock market that ultimately, you know, we have to reward labor as well as capital. And so, you know, you know, if there's going to be a kind of a New Deal style you know, stimulus infrastructure bill that could be very good, I think, for this country. Can I ask you a but, question? But I mean, I am that? worried. Yeah. No. What are you worried about first? Well, I'll tell you what I'm worried about. So, who's hiring right now? Amazon, right? Amazon is hiring, and you know what we, you know, that's really one of the only places that's hiring. 
And if you look at the way that they treat people, the way that they've turned, essentially they use technology to turn people into automata, right? Where every second of your life is scheduled, um, where, you know, you are a number, where you, you have Amazon warehouse employees who are fainting on the job, they don't get proper training, where, you know, the, the driver for Amazon doesn't have time to relieve himself, you know, but, and yet I don't have a choice. Increasingly, I, I'm using Amazon for everything, right? So I, I am worried. I think, you know, uh, someone like um, Scott Galloway talks about this all the time, that essentially the, my biggest concern is that we become um, uh, a, a, a country of indentured servants who are a surf class who is working for, um, who's working for Amazon, essentially, to, you know, support, the, the 1%. And that's actually what I'm most concerned about. So, you know, BitPay has been a super long-term sponsor of Untold Stories. And actually, one of my favorite companies in the space. I've been using them forever, since 2014. I've been using my BitPay debit card, and I love it. I have actually had two of them at this point because I use it so much. Anyways, BitPay is launching their newest program. It's super cool. No one knows any details about it except for me, and now except for you. It's still in stealth mode right now. But we've arranged that my listeners can get early access to their newest card program. So check it out. The first 100 people to sign up will get it literally free. All you have to do is go to bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. There's no catch. Go to bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. I've been using this product for years. This is the newest update. Everything about this product will beat the competitor on the market. Fees, limits, beautiful, sexy, little, sleek card. Everything about it is amazing. No one else has this opportunity except for you right now listening to this. BitPay.com forward slash Charlie. You guys are going to love it. It's so cool. I cannot wait to get my hands on one. Listen, Dan, it's, I think it's, it's okay to, to have these conversations because even if we're 1% right, it's good to have those mental exercises. And we pray and we hope that we're not right to the extreme that we're not. Like those models that say 20 million people are going to die, right? 20 million people are not going to die, hopefully, of this virus. But right. even if 20,000 die, it's something to be sad over, you know? So it's yes. like, that's why we have these conversations. But but moving on, I want to ask you, um, actually, you're like the perfect... So you probably do this too. Do you have these like, like moral exercises that you like challenge your own beliefs uh, in your head. Oh, yeah, you're like, think, uh, so this is one that I was having the other day. Massively important to do that, by the way, whatever you think you understand, whatever you think you believe. Yeah. Okay. Th so here think we the opposite. Okay. So here we go. Um, okay. So um, I spent a lot of time talking to you and you, I feel like you understand my like economic and ideological beliefs. Uh, yes. Not assigning a label to it, but more libertarian esque, but also social issues and, but but putting that aside for a second, um, I think there's a fundamental belief, especially with everyone in Bitcoin, yourself, and 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 I think the world at this point that quantitative easing, printing money debases the money in our pockets, and it's bad. It's like you know the whole Bitcoin was built on Chancellor uh, uh, on, on brink of second bailout for banks. I mean that's what Satoshi put in the block. The whole Bitcoin was Bitcoin is completely apolitical, but there's one political line in the in all of Bitcoin, and it was that. So yeah. on that note. Right. That on uh, that we are so fundamentally against QE, which is what we're doing with the, the New Deal and printing money and, you know, helicopter money and sending people checks. So listen, fundamentally, 
If you were to ask me January 15th, I would be fundamentally against that. But now we're in a crisis world. I see friends and family who could use this money. However, I'm, I'm still very against the printing of money. So this is where the mental right. exercise come in is that I'd like, I'd like to you to challenge me. When we're talking about, you brought up a great word. You said labor utility, right? And, and you're right. Mm. You have to reward labor utility. So the mental mm-hmm. exercise is if you print money, right? And like, by printing money, I literally mean like allow banks to like loan out money or even give away money to small businesses for like free. Um, so you're literally printing money, but you're only doing it to companies or businesses that are producing value. And by value, I mean like, like food or a service that can be exported and taxes can be charged on those exports. So you're bringing value to America at that point. I'm not so against QE. What do you think? I think that that's a slippery slope. Yeah, it is. Um, Because essentially the, the, you know, you're trying to turn then central banks into political organizations. So there's a kind of inherent conflict in what you're saying, which is, you know, we want our we we want to keep politics out of the money the money supply, um, unless it's my politics, right? That's fine as long as it's those, you know, the 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 sort of stuff that you've you've talked about right now, right? Which is like we the the central banks going to do things. Um, we're going to print money and and money supply towards our pet projects the problem becomes when a trump takes control of that and says christian industries get the money supply right or you know moral family focused anti-lgbtq get the money supply right and i think that's part of the thinking around wouldn't it be great if is part of a larger problem, which is that government has abrogated all responsibility, right? Government is of the people, by the people, for the people. The idea is that there's a free market and there's a financial system and they kind of operate independent and then they're regulated by us, the people, by our representatives in Congress or the Houses of Parliament in the UK or European Parliament. The, the what's largely happened, particularly ex, in the extreme in the state, is that 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 mechanism is broken. It doesn't work anymore. And so, you know, there's a lot of people who look to other areas, whether it's the Fed or whether it's corporations, um, to kind of step in to that void. But again, whenever I hear that, I'm not necessarily against it. I'm just, I just wonder why we can't have a functioning government. Do you know what I mean? I do. Um, I guess I, I try to look at it like, I don't think uh, politicizing money is a good idea at all. And it's actually a very bad idea. So you're right. When you're doing QE, but you're politicizing and that's what you're going at, like saying, for example, I forget which state it is saying that uh, um, abortion is not an essential business. So even not with QE, even with just overall this whole thing, you know, politicizing right. and saying that, uh, you know, uh, abortion clinics are not, uh, um, you know, I don't care where you stand politically, uh, just politicizing in general, a, a, uh, a pandemic is such a negative thing. And I can't believe the politicians that are doing it and, and history right. books will not look positive on them, to be honest. No, no. I mean, we, we, you know, 
this is a this is an unprecedented moment of crisis, and uh, you know we we need uh, it's it's sickening to see politics and positions playing out in, in this way, and we're going to pay for it. Um, uh, but it's it's part of a larger problem, which is that government has kind of abrogated the responsibility of oversight. Dan, um, you're the you're the chairman of the communications board for the Museum of American Finance. In in thirty sure. years from now, what will the exhibit look like for the time period that we're about to go through economically? Now, what will that exhibit look like? That's a great question. I know, right? I'm such a good host That's sometimes. <laughs> That's a really great question. Well done for your smart question. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I know I'm well, impressed listen, with myself. You're so happy with yourself. It's wonderful. I am. Um, no, it's a great question. I think on the one hand, it's going to, um, there's no question that, uh, and listen, I you're the Bitcoin expert. I'm not the Bitcoin expert. Like I said, I just play one on TV and I, I wrote a book that touches on it. But um I mean, I think we're going to, it's going to have to, at the museum, we're, we're already doing these, it's not an exhibit, but we're already doing a lot of talks about blockchain and decentralization and cryptocurrency, right? So I imagine 20 years from now, when we look back, you know, on the history of finance, decentralization, you know, blockchain, Ethereum, crypto is going to be a part of that discussion. You would agree, right? Yeah. A thousand percent. And um, I thought with my naive and um, limited uh, economic knowledge, I thought that the mass adoption of Bitcoin would be brought about by like high inflation slash super high, like hyperinflation and and crazy economies and then people will run to Bitcoin. Uh, I thought that was how things would happen. I didn't think Bitcoin would continue to excel like like it's doing now in a world where rates are going into negative. Like, I don't right. I don't get it from an economic, like I wish my economics professor was sitting in front of me and he could explain it to me because I don't, right. I don't understand it. And why were you worried that, you, you, you thought that Bitcoin would be a safe place in a hyperinflationary world because it would retain, because it would essentially has its, it has an anti-inflationary quality to it. Is that why you were, Actually, I saw something a little bit different. Um, So the way I thought, the way I still think Bitcoin will continue to to succeed, um, and this is constantly evolving, is Bitcoin will become eventually this like counterbalance currency to uh, national currencies. So when you'd have a country or two going through a mass inflation, Bitcoin will be what forces that country to remain responsible, knowing that its citizens could flee to a different currency that that cur- that government can't control anymore. And so again what would bring that about would be countries start to act irresponsibly with their money, uh graft embezzlement, you know, stupidity, whatever, political uh malfunction, and you'd see hy- hyperinflation and then you'd see people uh more run to bitcoin over the years over the years of the and I still think that's what what that's what's going to happen. Um I guess now you're seeing like you saw a huge decoupling uh, and I I want you to be talking. I I don't, I don't like what I talk no, no, so no. much I on mean, the show. I, on this area, I defer to, to your expertise. So you, I'm interested. Carry on. I guess I didn't uh, see, and I don't understand why as much. And I need to 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 things are happening in motion right now. Remember when we talked about the money mac? When we talked about money mackerel, I was yeah. telling you how I was yeah, in sure. jail and I was watching. I feel like that now. 
Right. We're sitting here watching this economic theory that we thought was one thing that's a little bit different now. Excuse me. <coughs> I don't have COVID. Right. Um, and so, okay, good. You're going to say that every time you, you have cough to say now. That. You have to check. No, have I have a t-shirt it. that just says I smoke weed. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just weed. Um, and so I guess what I didn't see would continue to uh, happen with Bitcoin, what I didn't expect was now that we're seeing a decoupling right. of the stock market in Bitcoin, you know, because the initial reaction of, of like COVID was just everything was just crazy. But now that we're seeing a decoupling, Bitcoin is like stabilizing right. nicely. It's continuing to grow. It's at a very nice level. Mm-hmm. It has now. It's at a great level, like 70,000, wonderful level, even 6,000. So it's a, it's a great level for a currency that's less than 10 years old. That's literally based right. on supply and demand. I didn't see this continuing to grow in, in the era of negative and zero interest rates. Ah, uh, okay. But wait, there is a theory, right, that it is a it is a safe asset like a gold. I know I one of the clients that we work with is uh Barry Diller's group, um DCG and they have this campaign drop gold. Yes. You know, which is which is positioning it so leaving aside the inflationary element just thinking of it as a safe, you know, haven at this time. Uh, do you see that playing out? Do you think that like, yes, I know I'm adopting the role of interviewer right now. No, no, it's great. It's fine. It's a, it's a place I feel more comfortable than being on the spot, but isn't it the case? Do you need to have a high, inf- a high inflationary environment to drive Bitcoin adoption? Or is it not just that in the tumult of what's going on in the market, Bitcoin looks like a sort of safe place to kind of put your money for a bit. You're a hundred percent right. Um, but I want it to be more than a bit. I want it to be seen as a great place to put your money long-term. And for that to happen, you need credit markets. You need the ability for people to remain in Bitcoin, in crypto, and to do all their... Because when you, you, don't just, you don't just earn money and then save it. You spend it. You, you use money to earn more money. You buy properties, you uh, can loan someone money, right. you can borrow money, you, they're, they're your mortgages. I mean, that's the basic of our whole financial world, right? The credit markets. Uh, that's why we care about what our credit score is so we can enter the credit market so we can grow our own net worth. Do you remember like over the past few years, uh, as Bitcoin was growing, interest rates were, were rising, right? Like every few months or every six months, half a percent. And it looked like we were going to go into a world of real interest rates. Like, And I was excited for that because- Real interest rates, like five, six percent, allow for the ability to earn money with your money, and so that brought about. Do you know the whole industry we have? That's a sub industry of crypto, of distributed finance, DeFi, whatever. Like you have Nexo, and you have blockchain lending, and you have that whole industry right. now. That whole industry came about because we were entering a world of interest rates where companies can offer you interest on your Bitcoin, and that was furthering. People were now storing their money in. Bitcoin and crypto and Ether, Ethereum longer term now because they could earn right. their, their invest, they could earn money. Now with negative yes. to zero interest rates, I fear these companies can't offer. That's where I'm going with this. They can't offer these same rates anymore, and and we may not see the distributed finance industry, which is within within in crypto, may cease to exist. I see, which is this sort of secondary and tertiary industries that build on and strengthen the underlying primary industry. Exactly. Right. And you're worried that, but I was reading this piece. And again, this is like, I am not an economist, but I was reading this thing that was basically saying that 
you know, far from being an anomaly, negative interest rates or at least zero interest rates, you know, is, um, you know, may just be a factor. They did this, they did this sort of history thing, looking back to the, to the 15th century and the Venetians and um, over the long term, interest rates over the last 500 years have been coming down and are trending towards negative. So we feel like this, we feel like this low interest environment is like an aberration, but it may be the kind of long-term reality that we all have to deal with. What is that reality? Is, is the norm of today, the new normal is like, like it could I'm... be. And one of the things I was saying about one of the things I was reading, and I don't know if there's any value in this is like, you know, you know, um, the monocent, what is it called? What's the monopoly for suppliers called? Monocony? Mono, monopsony, right? Yeah, of something like Amazon that. Amazon may be artificially depressing the price of goods because they keep taking all of their mammoth profits and driving it into lower and lower cost solutions. So basically, Amazon could be artificially impacting um, the interest rate environment, true, or the the, inf- the inflation rate environment. And and can we can we uh, can we zoom out for a moment again? Um, yeah, sure. Because I feel like we've been a little bit pessimistic, and I want to like present the other side. Uh, and I'm sure. gonna, and and to the people who tell me, Charlie, not every antidote needs a story. Fuck off! It does. Every antidote does need a story. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you a story. Um, two Good. years ago, I was driving uh, on my friend's land in South Africa. Uh, he's got a lot of acres lot thousands of acres um and Ooh. we're driving and all of a sudden we go over a curve and i was like it's like Shit, simon your your land is burning he's massive wildfire huge burning like mm. i've never have you ever seen a wall of fire in front of you Luck, thank god we've never like i don't live in california i've never seen a wildfire but it is the scariest right. thing in the world massive wall right. of fire from him i said simon if that your hundreds of acres are burning and he looks at me smiling. He says, Charlie, I do this every year to different parts of my land. He goes, I right. need to. I need to reset the land. Maybe COVID-19 is kind of like the Earth's way of resetting itself for a little bit. Not like a full reset, <laughs> but just like a little bit of like a, hey, we need to take a step back and reflect. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I think what, I, look, I have no idea whether the no, Earth no one is does. doing it. But from a, but from a. From a kind of a not a the earth, but more of like the, the market humanity aspect. Yeah, the market humanity. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, there was a lot of froth and craziness over the last couple of years. And I just feel like, you know, I've been through a few of these cycles now, 2001, 2008. And right towards the end, you start to see, you know, craziness kind of persists. People's ideas get a little kind of wackadoo things get a little skewed people get too rich too wealthy and i do think the corrections you know notwithstanding like the impact on my personal life and my business right so it's like what is it they say i think it was herbert hoover or it was truman who said um you know a, a recession is when your neighbor is is out of work and a depression is when you're out of work so like um you know leaving aside the impact on myself I believe that a correction is overdue and probably very good. It's also throwing, I mean, going back to that thing we were talking about uh, with the uh, people who've been designated essential workers who are the most at risk and the lowest paid, I kind of got to believe there's going to be an eat the rich 
revolution that's going to happen in this country. You know, as, as Scott Galloway again said, that at some point the 40, the bottom 40% of the world's population is going to wake up and realize that they can double their income by taking it away from the world's top eight families. You know what I mean? Like that, that stat is insane when you think about it, right? There's eight families in the world who own more wealth than the bottom 40% of the global population. And like, to build on top yeah, of, can I, can I build on top of that? Because you're getting me in a very yeah. positive mode and I just had a bite of like an amazing blueberry scone as well. Oh, good. Well, that, that'll do it. I know. So that'll now I'm like you pumped. loaded up. Um, and you got sugar and you're ready to throw a chair through a Starbucks. Yeah. <laughs> I have another story. No, I do have another story though. Um, um, for the on- entrepreneurs understand it, but I don't have the statistics, but large, I mean like the majority of the world lives paycheck to paycheck, but not just lives paycheck to paycheck, but earns a paycheck. Like, like gets like a, an actual paycheck every two weeks or whatever. Um, the amount of people that like own their own businesses and will only take whatever's profit left over for the month and lives and knows how to budget that. That's a very risky life to live. Uh, you live that. I live that. Um, most people don't. Uh, and the story goes is that a few years ago, when I after I moved down to Florida, my brother-in-law um, was visiting with his wife a lot. And he's like, I really want to move down. My brother-in-law uh, has has um, worked uh, a very good specialized position um, for a very, very long time, like very, very long time, highly trained, very specialized, but paycheck to paycheck. No idea how to like, what? I said, yeah, no idea how to like run his own business. No idea how to never, never even needed to file, like file his own taxes, but never even like needed to write things off. Uh, and he's much older than me. Um, and he's like, Charlie, I want to move down, but I don't know how to, to do it. And I said, no one does just quit your job and move down start your own business with what you do to do it for other people instead of one company and you'll be successful. I, I have faith in you. He's like, but I don't know how to do business. I don't know how to even start a business. I don't know how to, it's like, no one does again, Google it, just figure it out. Like what's worse. The worst case that can happen is you move back and you get your old job back. Anyways, I'm very happy to report that he's very successful now and supporting the family uh, with his new business. He's got me people working for him. The point is that even if out of every 1000 people, that worked for a company that got fired. If 999 go back to work, if only one of them start their own business, our economy is in better shape. For sure. The problem we've got is that, let's talk about, let's talk about small businesses, right? Because there's 32 million small businesses. They're the ones that are most affected um, by COVID. They produce more than 50% of the new jobs in this country and two thirds of the GDP. So small business formation is essential. Entrepreneurship is the engine of this country. Um, and God bless your friend and everyone else. Uh, but the problem we've got in this country, we have to address the 999 out of a thousand that choose not to do that for whatever reason, right? Because they're, they, you know, they don't think it's within their power to do it, or they're not educated on how to do it, or they, it's just not their, you know, it's just not the way yeah. that they, you know, are built. Like not everyone, I started my own company. Not everyone can. I was what I call a reluctant entrepreneur. I didn't necessarily want to do it. Is the it, problem but, we've got in this country is that we, we still favor capital over labor. And so, yes, it's great if you start your own business. You get to buy the building you work in, and that's capital. You get to own equity in the business, and that's capital. And you know, notwithstanding the correction that's happening right now, capital is outpacing labor by you know 10 times. And we have to have – and I'm not trying to get political about it. It's not like I'm like a Bernie bro or anything – 
I, I just think that we we have lost sight of what we do with that other 999 people out of every thousand um, who just want to show up and do a good day's work and go home because those people can't make ends meet. If oh, so you're saying that in you, people yeah. do want to like I'm discounting the people that do want to get their paycheck every day. We need to still look out for those people. Not everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. Not everyone can be. They don't have the wherewithal or the means or like, you know, we've, we've, we've come to fetishize entrepreneurship uh, and not celebrate the people. Like none of the people keeping the world moving right now are entrepreneurs. Let's put it that way, right? Like while we are stuck here and we're relying on, you know, curbside pickup or the supply chain for our um uh, you, you know, for our groceries or Amazon deliveries, like none of the people who are making this world work right now are entrepreneurs. They're nurses, teachers, doctors, as you said, they're firefighters, cops, they're truck drivers, they're warehouse employees, and they're frontline um, uh, supermarket employees. I agree. Uh, with, I agree with you. Uh, but what about the the entrepreneurs who are using their money to buy business class charters to fly two tons of medical equipment from you know China to Budapest? And the reason I gave a specific example is because that's not a billionaire who did it. That's a friend of mine who uh, sold his company for a million bucks. So he's not like a billionaire, you know, but he's got some shekels to it. his name. What about those people? I, I that's great. That's great. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not against philanthropy. I, I just think this is that, my show. I, I just, this is what I do. I just think it's. I just honestly, my personal feeling is, um, you know, tax these people better. <laughs> you know, philanthropy is kind of like the uh, band aid over a bullet wound. I'm all up for. I'm all up for philanthropists. I am. I think it's great, but I think it's been used. You know, when I said over the last. At the end of a cycle. I know what you're going to say, and frothy, I agree with you. Yeah. When everything gets frothy and you need a moment like this to Gluttonous. Yeah. Like, well, that's a great example. Like the World Economic Forum and Davos, you want to talk about the insiders that we're on the outside of fucking getting together yeah. and patting each other on the back for their philanthropy. You know, philanthropy will not solve the fundamental problems. But what I was going to say is if, if, if the minimum wage had kept up in just in the city of New York, if the minimum wage had kept up with uh, with the increasing rent price of rent, it would be twenty eight dollars an hour just to keep up with rent. You know, there's no amount of philanthropy that's going to solve that. Like we need structural reform. We need structural reform. But how do you do that without creating more government and more regulations? I guess that's the fear. I agree with you. I, I I do agree with you so much. We do need padding. Well, you're a libertarian, and I'm fundamentally not. So. No, but I'm not a libertarian. I'm I'm really not. I'm I'm a, I'm a person. I'm a human. I'm a human. I'm a human being who wants yeah, other people. We can we we can also agree on that. You are absolutely. A human I being. I believe in in padding. I believe in a net, and I believe in in me wanting to sleep at night. Uh, knowing that there is some protections for my, for me, my family and my friends too. I guess out of this, the fear is the ones who are calling for what you're saying will have further, further centralization in government and it'll just create further centralization in the economy for what you're, what you were talking about. Because 
you're just going to tap the, the government. All the government's going to say is that it's the, the company's now res- more responsibility to enact those regulations protecting the workers. It's not the government that's going to do it. It's going to be the companies because our government's lazy. Yeah, but the go- but we have a government in this country that is very much on the side of, let's say, talk about unionization. I'm a big fan like, of states. Like if Florida came out and said, this is what we want to have a Florida social security, that would be amazing. Or a New but York. Do you believe, do you believe, let's take gig economy, right? Do you believe that Amazon warehouse workers have a right to unionize? A hundred percent. Everyone should okay. have the right to unionize, no? Well, they don't. And that's because we have a government that isn't mandating that these guys treat their employees. But that's not a fair, that's not a fair like question because- I don't think anyone will ever say that like like no one should have the right to unionize. But there's also and I'm not like I don't know union law or anything, but the other side, I'm sure there are responses on the other side that there should be things should be done in a certain way, because what would happen to the world? You know, do you want to live in a world of daily strikes? I mean, dude, how many fucking times does 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 France Railway strike every day? How many times does KLM strike all the time? They they're always doing it. They strike all the time because they can. Do you want to live in a world with constant striking? So there needs to be like, I guess, a balance somewhere. I don't know where that is because I'm not an economist, but I'm a big balanced. I'm a human balanced person. And I know you are, too. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I got to say, I think that, you know, I, 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 maybe I'm getting Churchill said, right, if you're not a liberal in your 20s, you don't have a heart. And oh, I never heard that. I love that. By your 40s. He said, if you don't have, if you, if you're not a liberal in your 20s, you don't have a heart. And if you're not a conservative by your 40s, you don't have a brain. Um, and I'm finding that as I get older, I'm going in the other direction. Like I'm getting more, like I said before, like throw a chair through a Starbucks window. You're enlightened. Like the book really galvanized for me this idea that like, holy shit, traditional finance isn't helping the regular people. Like, you know, people, regular people are using credit to like smooth over the massive income volatility that companies like Amazon and Uber are forcing on them because it used to be you showed up to work at a place like a factory and whether the, the factory sold any cars or cans or whatever they made or not, that was the factory's fucking problem, not your problem. You still got a paycheck. And that was the way you talk about the middle class, the evisceration of the middle class. That's what we had in this country as you went to the Ford factory. And it was Ford's problem to figure out how to sell more fucking cars. The genius of Amazon or Uber or any of these is they say, you show up to the factory and it's your fucking problem if no one buys any of our stuff. Uh, essentially that's, I mean, that's stripper economics, right? Yeah. Like that's, what you pay, you pay to show up, but if you don't make any fucking, you don't have any punters, that's on you. You've, and, you, uh, sorry, what were you going to say? You've proven yourself to be, uh, you know, balanced, at least in this, in, in this conversation. And, and so the, the, the listeners to the show probably want to hear more from you. And so <laughs> you've written a book and, and I'm yeah. in the book. And we're yes, getting towards the end of the show. Let's talk about the book. When is it coming okay. out? What's it about? How can people buy it? Very kind of you to bridge. So I don't just spend yeah. my time railing, <laughs> railing at Amazon. And Wait, Amazon isn't PR guy. your job? You know, I'm a bad, I'm, I'm a bad PR guy. I'm also <laughs> railing against all the companies that I work for. Yeah, they're all your clients. Pay me for a living. Yeah, they're all my clients. <laughs> and if you read my book, I kind of hope some of them don't read the book. Um... Because it's not always massively favorable. Yeah. I mean, lots of great work comes out of the financial industry. So the book, the book is called The Money Hackers, How a Team of Misfits uh, Took on Wall Street and uh, Changed Finance Forever. And um, it comes out next week. You can buy it on Amazon. 
Uh, I can't guarantee when it's going to be delivered to you uh, because it's Amazon and we're in the middle of a crisis. You can buy it at Barnes & Noble online too, um, or you can download it immediately, uh, and there'll be an audio book coming out at some point. Um, so just search The Money Hackers in Amazon. It is the true story of uh, a, a group of really fascinating individuals, of whom you are one, Charlie, um, who following the financial crisis and the kind of the tumult that came out and the vacuum that was left by the traditional financial institutions kind of applied technology first thinking and a lot of this kind of interesting technology that was coming out in 2008 and really saw an opportunity in the crisis to rethink the way that finance can support people and work for people and make their money um, go further and do more for them. Um, and each one of these guys and girls are absolutely fascinating in their own right. We tried to write the book in a way that wasn't about the technology first. It was about the life stories of these individuals. You've got a fascinating life story, Charlie, but there's lots of other people in the book who have equally fascinating life stories in different areas of finance. Ishmael Ahmed, who runs World Remit or ran World Remit, started this remittance company. You know, he began his life as a refugee in war-torn Somalia uh, before becoming the head of remittances for the wow. UN. he's a true misfit. Uh, yeah, total misfit. Uncovered a scandal inside the, the UN, became a whistleblower, got fired by the UN, sued them, won, and then used that money to start World Remit. So every chapter has at least one of these absolutely kind of wackadoo, outsider, strange characters. Um, and then, you know, as you're reading about their story, my hope is that the reader will take away some extra information about the technology that they're um, trying to uh, that they are that they are trying to disrupt. So it's the story of disruption. It's a story of what's happening to your money, um, and I think specifically very germane to right now and this crisis that we're in at this moment is it's the story of how uh, some people looked at. Uh, a crisis and saw nothing, uh, like you said, but a wall of fire <laughs> to run away from. And some people saw an enormous opportunity. And I think in this particular moment, in this crisis, same thing is going to happen again. There will be a bunch of people who look and, uh, and see nothing but crisis. Big established players who only see downside in what's going on right now. And somewhere in someone's basement or garage are a bunch of kids tinkering around and and they're seeing opportunity in this current crisis uh you like stories right so there's a story charlie of two shoe salesmen from manchester who are sent to africa in the 1800s and one telegrams back and says uh situation hopeless they don't wear shoes here and the other telegrams uh, incredible opportunity. They don't have any shoes yet. That's a great uh, and analogy. I think, and I think that's where, you know, that's what happened in 2008. Some people said situation hopeless. Uh, and some people said amazing opportunity. And the same thing is going to happen in 2020. Dan Simon, author of the new book, The Money Hackers, that's being released. Actually, it's released now because this episode is, is being released the week that the book was released. Uh, and thank your PR people for that, whoever they are. 
<laughs> yes, that, they'd that, be very, they'd be very good. Yeah, thank you very much for your time again, and and uh, please be safe. And hopefully, I get to hang out with you in in the post COVID world. Oh man, that'll be nice. We can go to one of the remaining bars that's been able to open, and we'll have a drink. Yeah. <laughs> I'll talk to you later. All right, thanks, man. Take care. Okay, awesome. Are you there still? Yeah, I am. Yeah. Okay, cool. So you'll see a pop up that says you're all done, and it's going to upload like your audio. A local copy of your audio. Did did that pop up okay. come in? It says it's uploading. It's thirty yeah. percent. It's uploading. It's a thirty-one percent. Yeah. Yeah. If this so uploads good, it, then and I, I don't need your your local co- like save that the the other copy that you you downloaded. Yeah. But you don't. Uh, you send it to me later. There's no rush. Like, but this copy okay, that's uploading cool. now is is good enough. That means the technology awesome. worked today. Okay. That, well, I am very pleased. To this hear was that. one of my best episodes that- I've done in a while. I was in a little bit of a slump oh. the past few weeks because of COVID. I a little depressed so this was great thank you oh good i'm glad i could listen if i get charlie shram out of a light depression i'm you know i'm doing my job man That's you great. really did thank I'm you very happy <laughs> i'll talk All to you right, later well, listen yeah be well okay you Take too care. ciao hey everyone thanks for listening new episodes of untold stories are released every tuesday and thursday at 7 a.m est on untoldstories.com apple spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offert. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers, and information is power.